Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Gaines. Hello and welcome to Chris Gaines the Podcast, the show where we take an exhaustive look at the career of country superstar Garth Brooks and his much maligned decision in 1999 to reveal a fictional rocker character creating R&B songs named Chris Gaines. The debut album, In the Life of Chris Gaines, was meant to be a pre-soundtrack release to a feature film entitled The Lamb, a way of letting the audience get to know the character before they went to see the movie. Despite selling 2 million copies, the album was considered a complete failure and heralded an early retirement from Brooks. I'm Michael Eads. I'm Ashley Spurgeon. And here we are, Chris Gaines, the podcast, episode six. That's a lot of episodes. That is, and they've all been longer than we expected. Way lo- We've talked about Chris Gaines for approximately six hours now at this point, yeah. so I guess we're pushing hour seven of Gaines' discussion, it turns out approximately. There's, turns out there's a whole lot to say about Chris Gaines. <laughs> yeah, when you, I'm looking in front of me, which magazine did you buy from the internet? This is Country Weekly, with the two faces of Garth on the cover, which is a hell of a split screen view here we'll share this on the twitter that's beautiful yeah but you know when when you've done the research like we have you've got things to say yeah absolutely we also (laughs) now have weird memorabilia just laying about about chris Gaines. yeah like this magazine i bought that garth brooks t-shirt for the photo shoot that we took together and now it's just in my rotation like i just wore it to work the other day i mean it's a great shirt you garth brooks fan no but the quality (laughs) of this cotton i gotta tell you it's a nice shirt garth doesn't chimp out when it comes to (laughs) Nice shirts. We'll do a little housekeeping here at the top. Let you know that this show is brought to you by We Own This Town. You can check that out at weownthistown.net. We are on the internet at chrisgainespodcast.com and on Twitter at Garth Gaines SNL, which of course, is a handle that was chosen before this podcast was ever even thought of because Ashley came up with the wonderful idea to just power the people to get Garth and Chris Gaines Back, back on together, SNL. back to get the gang back together. It's been 20 years. Right? The, everyone loves a remake. Everyone loves a, a, a revamp. Everyone loves a sticking the pads on the old chest and just <laughs> zapping it back to life. Yeah. That's why we have 18 more full houses now. Oh, man. You Thank know? God we have more full houses, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let's get them back on there. They haven't announced yet who is going to host in November. Mm-mm. So. I'm still living on a little bit of a prayer here that maybe, maybe, maybe it can happen. Maybe. Who but knows? By the time this episode comes out, eh, maybe they'll have announced it and it'll be Chris Rock. But missed opportunity. I'm just saying that if they want, if Saturday Night Live wants to expand their audience into, I don't know, more nerds, you know, yeah. this is a way to get it done. You know what Saturday Night Live needs more of? Nerds. Nerds. Yeah. Before we dive into today's subject, I wanted to cover a little bit of listener feedback that we've been receiving from the Twitter. Uh, We really love all the mentions and the ats and the likes and the DMs. It's great. I especially like the ones that talk about how great I am. Oh, of course. Those those really are great. (laughs) As always, we are here for validation, and it seems like we're getting it. So uh, Livia Komar liked 66 of our tweets. Livia, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Livia. It feels great. 
Fusilli Jerry, fantastic Twitter handle I get there. That reference. I do too. Uh, he's been talking up a storm with us. <laughs> Love it. Keep it coming. Uh, just today, during the recording of this, Jason Elliott said, "Words cannot express how excited I am to listen to Chris Gaines the podcast." Oh, yay! I mean, I really hope we don't disappoint. This is a lot of pressure, and now I hope on episode six, hope hope we yeah. satisfied you. Jason. I hope you make it to this episode and hear your name mentioned. Yeah, that would be cool, I right? Mean, that would make anyone like the show to hear their own <laughs> name, right? I would love it. I call into Thanks a podcast. To you, Mary. Austin, <laughs> Tiffany, Brad, Terry. Bradley, <laughs> Grandma. Brad and Bradley. <laughs> yes. Get them knocked out. Yeah. <laughs> we get a couple specific pieces of feedback that I, I really want to talk about just very briefly. Uh, Miles Price, our wonderful photographer, yes, yes. who did our pictures for uh, ChrisGainsPodcast.com. He made a great point about the Wallflowers comparison that Ooh. we did. You know, we went off about how that Chris Gaines song sounds exactly like a Wallflower uh-huh. song. Turns out that track, the Hammond B3 organ that we hear, Rami Jaffe, same guy who played on Bringing Down the Horse. Oh, my God. Played on the Chris Gaines That is amazing. I love that. That makes me feel so good. I have a similar story where I realized one day the harmonica in the Spice Girls Say You'll Be There is the exact same as the harmonica in Karma Chameleon by Culture Club. And I'll be damned if it's not the same harmonica player, like 10 years apart, like from 84 to 96 or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's the same motherfucking harmonica wow. guy. He's got a style. He's got a tone. Who is the who is the Hammond organist? Rami Jaffe. I'm going to buy some Rami Jaffe records. Yeah. Uh, so it turns out this song that we're fairly confident was probably written for the Wallflowers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Has a guy who played on okay. the Wallflowers album. Yeah. Amazing. So thank <laughs> it's a small world. You, thank you for the heads up, Miles. I bet if we did a little more research into all of the players on the record, oh we God. would come up with tons of these. There's probably like 10 members of Fleetwood Mac sprinkled about it's the like album. It's British actors. There's only like 15 of them. There's <laughs> Timothy Spall, Heron, Helen Mirren. That's it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and K.M. Schneid, Kevin, I know you, uh, he had some insight on the music journalism that we talked about. Um, and he said, music journos, especially in the 90s, I think, were so middle of the road on everything. They really only took a hard stance on very safe bets. Mm. Panning this was easy and low stakes. A hundred percent agreed. Yeah. A hundred percent agreed. Absolutely. Which was a really nice transition into this tweet stream that I saw earlier this week from Matt LeMay. Matt LeMay had a band in the early aughts uh, called Get Him, Eat Him, I believe. But he was also a music journalist for Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. Um, a young man. A young man. Yes. 2003, writing for Pitchfork. Kind of the epitome of snarky journalism. Actually, I think he and I are probably the same age then. Because I was I was 19 in 2003. Were you snarkier in 2003? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, he is responsible for giving Liz Fair's self-titled album, which you may or may not remember. Liz Fair went pop. She's known for Exile and Guyville. Do you hear something? Yeah. The pop songs are the only ones I know. Whoa. Well. I never listened to Liz Fair. Wow. Uh, aside from that being some excellent ASMR. Whenever I think about you. That one? No, I don't know that one. Oh, okay. I know fucking run, you know? <laughs> uh, but, you know. This is a really interesting comparison between the two. Liz Fair is known for being this indie darling, mm-hmm. exile and yes, yeah. guy, like just like a really empowered female voice kind of goes away for, I think, a long time between these two records and comes back as a pop individual. Yeah, like six or seven years. Yeah. Or yeah. And Matt LeMay's uh, Pitchfork review is like 0.0. Like, 
I can't believe she would do this to mm-hmm. us. Just like outlandish that Liz Fair would, would make this jump. Sell out. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And to remind you all, you're listening to a Chris Gaines podcast, Garth Brooks, huge country <laughs> Literal star. sellout. He's, he's the, <laughs> yeah. he is the reason that terms like sellout exist because he sells out stadiums. But anyway. LeMay uh, <laughs> went on this, this tweet stream. There's a new Liz Fair interview mm-hmm. on uh, Vulture that's really interesting. She's doing a lot of great reflection on her career and like these changes through the different genres that she's gone through and LeMay kind of calls himself out a little bit. I don't know if I should read this entire tweet stream verbatim. I, you know what? Read it verbatim and then cut the parts that don't work. Yeah. So here we go. <clears throat> I tremendously enjoyed this interview with Liz Fair, which is given me cause to reflect on the condescending and cringy 0.0 review I wrote way back when. In 2019, it's almost inconceivable that there would be any controversy around an established indie musician working on a radio-friendly pop album with radio-friendly pop songwriters. To a smug 19-year-old pitchfork writer in, (laughs) in 2003, it was just as inconceivable that an established indie artist would try to or want to make a radio-friendly pop album in the first place. The idea that indie rock and radio pop are both cultural constructs, languages to play with, masks for an artist to try on? Yeah, I certainly did not get that. Liz Fair did get that way before many of us did. It was 100% over my head that the authentic signifiers of Guyville and the inauthentic signifiers of Liz Fair were just that. Signifiers. Yeah. You know, like art. (laughs) Which is not to say that one cannot prefer one set of signifiers over the other, or thoughtfully critique an album for using those signifiers in a more or less compelling way. But Liz Fair's self-titled album was a direct assault on the idea that indie rock is intrinsically artistic and authentic, Mm -hmm. and radio pop is intrinsically constructed and inauthentic. At the time, indie rock good slash pop music bad felt like the lingua franca of people who saw ourselves as above the culture Mm -hmm. at large. In retrospect, this was, of course, a reactive interpolation of the culture at large and a pretty fucking toxic one at that. It was, in many ways, the red pill nonsense of that scene slash era. The promise that young men who felt wrong by the culture at large could see through that culture to find the secret truth that evaded those less smart, male, and entitled than us. Here's the kicker. Liz Fair going pop cast a stark and damning light on the arrogance, entitlement, and condescension of indie rock dudes, which is exactly what Guyville had done a decade prior. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of reading, but... Yeah, he's right. I admire and appreciate the self-reflection. Yeah, calling himself out and being amazingly articulate about how how wrong he was and mm-hmm. why he was wrong. Yeah, I mean, maybe a don't give like nineteen year olds that much power right. because they don't really know what the hell they're talking about. Right. It's funny. You're an authority. You know what I mean? Because yes. that's the thing about criticism is like any critic is the authority. Absolutely. Who uh, is this critic? He's a fucking nineteen year old. It's like I knew about this shit because like I took a theater class. Right. I was. You know what I mean? It's like all it all you need is one class. Right. Oh, just the you one. know sometimes yeah. like I don't know when it goes to the thing that you were talking like, about last week where oh I just learned a thing so no one else must know it yet exactly you know and yeah, he's yeah. saying here Liz Fair did get this way mm-hmm. before many of us did no dude you were 19 like it's not that she got it before anybody else did like 
Tons of people were on board. Lots yeah. of people understood this construct. There's a thing called academia. Yeah. It exists. <laughs> the, the people in it, like they write books about stuff. Right. Generally. That's the MO. Mm, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that's know. a really fascinating way to contextualize the Chris Gaines thing yeah. because there was a lot of snarky journalism in mm-hmm. 1999 and early 2000s. And there is no way that they were going to give this a chance. And these cultural constructs and these problems that LeMay was dealing with as a 19-year-old were obviously still going on for other writers just a few years prior. Absolutely. And you want to talk signifiers, (laughs) country music, hello. Right. The hat, the boots, you Mm -hmm. know, come on. I mean, literally, when he would perform Chris Gaines songs, not as Chris Gaines, because he only did that on SNL, but when he would perform those Chris Gaines songs, he would take the hat off. That's, oh God, he oh, would... put it in my fucking veins, Michael, <laughs> oh, put it in my veins, oh, that's the good shit. I mean, shit. it was literal, oh. literal costume change, you know, oh, like, oh, I'm not going to wear the button-up shirt with the bold colors on it, I'm just going to wear the mm-hmm. black shirt and no cowboy hat because I'm Chris Gaines song time right now. I love yeah. So good. It's so, so good. Really fascinating. And it works as a phenomenal transition into what we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And today is the heady episode. <laughs> This is the one where we get to kind of pontificate on Chris Gaines in general. Yeah. We've gone through all the literal histories of the characters involved and the reception of it. But now we can talk about what the fuck was this? (laughs) Yeah. You know? So I think we both have some theories to discuss. I know that mine is far more simplistic than yours because I am not as smart as you. I took like one class, like I said. So (laughs) everything I say, I don't know, Google it. There's there's going to be bad backup sources well here's the thing i took zero classes so i'm not that far ahead i breezed through college i do have a lot to say about heady kind of stuff and like subcultures and groups that i do not 100 percent belong to but there are people wiser than me who have said much much smarter things uh, that being said everything i will say is 100 percent right and accurate and true today <laughs> yes. so so today <laughs> we're gonna look at some heavy topics that might require you to dig in a little deeper we're not saying that we're experts but actually if you're listening to episode six of Chris Gaines, the podcast, I feel like you are willing to do the work. Yes, absolutely. So, so I'm going to start with my little simplistic thesis. And uh, we'll stop putting yourself down. Ah, it's all right. I know where I know what yours is and I love it. <laughs> and I look forward to understanding it more. Mine is more of a summary of of the thing. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily super insightful, but Basically, my thought is that the music of the project didn't matter. Yeah. We both say that it's a fantastically mediocre album, and things might be different if it had not been a fantastically mediocre album, but it's everything else around the project, beyond the music, that made it stick. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, we're here to discuss why Chris Gaines is a thing that we want to talk about 20 years later. How many things happened in 1999 from random musical artists? or just cultural events that we don't give a shit about Yeah, now. that's a really good point. Chris Gaines has persevered, and it's sure as hell not because of the songs. I was trying to think of, I was like, 99, no scrubs? Did no scrubs come out in 99? I think maybe yeah, <laughs> that's it the did. only other thing that comes off he, the top of my head. I mean, there's definitely songs from yeah. that time that have persevered, but there aren't like the year 2000 bug. Like, that's a thing mm-hmm. culturally that we talk about. I don't know. I'm hitting a, a wall trying to think of like, other crazy things that happened in 99. Yeah, I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the Chris Gaines Project was born out of impatience for a movie deal. 
We know that Garth Brooks and Lisa Sanderson had been working on a movie deal, potentially The Lamb, for years. years. We only meet Chris Gaines at the end of 98 and throughout 99, but we know that this seed of an idea has been planted I for mean, like, many, minimum, many years. Minimum of five years. Absolutely. A minimum of five years, Garth Brooks is going to do a movie. Right. Is in his head. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's so confident about it, he's turning down films that are insane to turn <laughs> down. Like, that end up being some of the biggest blockbuster movies even, of the summer. Actually, it's like really funny, honestly. The movie doesn't even... Spielberg offers him a role. Eh, I'll pass. That's, that's. I don't want to be the sniper. That's pretty fun. That's cool. It's insane. That's really it's a, cool. That's honestly really cool. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's part of the perseverance. That's insane. We didn't even know that in 1999. But, I mean, that is insanely cool that that happened. So they decide to make this album. They're impatient about the movie, so they're like, let's just get this album out. Why not make an album about a character? We have evidence that this has been done before successfully. Luke the Drifter, Ziggy Stardust, Kiss is characters. Like, Garth Brooks loves Kiss. Those are characters. Yeah. Those aren't real people. In fact, it was insane when Kiss became real people you know yeah Once it was scary a- <laughs> and no one liked it no. and everyone was like put that shit back on and they were like okay yeah absolutely <laughs> so we know that characters can work in a musical framework and be successful it's not outlandish to think that if you're in brooks gang and someone says that and brooks comes up with this idea maybe you don't think it's crazy maybe you know brooks can sing in a higher octave yeah and why not you let absolutely him know wings? that yeah he's he, he's an he's amazing doing performer it you know what right. i don't know what garth's vocal warm-ups are but i know we fucking does them because he's a performer and a singer and a professional absolutely you know but the dichotomy and the unfortunate part of the whole thing is that they made an r&b record yeah a light r&b record like yeah a light r&b record from an absolutely brooding rock and roller yeah so they cast him as angry and tortured but he's experienced nothing but success which we learned from his Mm -hmm. backstory i mean his father dies But lots of people's parents die. Like, (laughs) his house burns down, but he immediately has a house, like, three months later. Yeah. Doesn't even lament all the things that he lost. (laughs) His best friend dies, but basically that fuels his passion for the remainder of his life. He, like, wears the ring every day. They tried to tread lightly to not be offensive. Like, one of the Gaines albums is named Fornicopia, Mm -hmm. not Pornicopia. But then they made the character a sex addict. Yeah. So they tried to dodge this offensive thing about pornography, but then they just dove headfirst into sex addict. And it's funny about that, too, because there's so many, like, horrible stories of all these, like, 70s and 80s rockers and all these, like, backstage sex stories that are just discuss, you know like right. really like next level shit and it's like there's none of those in the games back it's just like oh there's lots of women well, that's he, all you need to know more women than you could count on one hand <laughs> he had up to six women <laughs> if not more at a time but you know but all of the like dirty little details were album sales yeah. and things like that yeah. like, and the arson fire and the, and the, and the, the arson is set fire of course so I think everyone in, <laughs> I think everyone involved simply couldn't see the puzzle for the pieces I like that I like that. They built this crazy hype machine around the world's biggest country star and just kind of assumed people would come on board. But it was kind of too much. 
people didn't even listen to the album because they were constantly thinking, what the fuck is this? Yeah, I mean, two million people bought the album, but if you didn't buy the album, you didn't listen to it because guess what? You weren't streaming it because guess what? There wasn't such a thing as streaming. Guess what? You weren't listening to it on the radio because they weren't really playing it on them like a couple of adult contemporary stations, but that's it. I think that's so fascinating to think about that in 1999, the CD comes out. You Mm -hmm. can buy the CD. And then once the project tanks, because all of the reviews are this mentality of what is this? Not how is it? What is this? You know, it gets pulled. As soon as that first run is sold, 2 million copies, which is impressive, particularly in 2019, you're not going to be able to stream that. Like, it's gone. The music doesn't matter because it's gone Mm -hmm. in the blink of an eye. Garth's second Christmas album perseveres more than Chris Gaines. Yeah. That's crazy. The Christmas album that came out three months after right. <laughs> after right. the Gaines album. Which, yeah. Which to me is insane because that means he recorded a Christmas album while he was doing Chris Without Gaines. Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. granted, if the songs had been stronger, like I said, we might be living in a completely different world. Maybe it would be a utopia that I can't even imagine. Get to, come come on everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come on people now. Yeah. <laughs> But I think for the ask from the audiences wasn't about hearing new and different Brooks music. Mm-mm. It was coming to terms with this bizarre performance. And it was just a bridge too far. I can't articulate what that performance would even be called. Yeah. But I think that's what it was. It is a performance. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's my that's thesis. Great. And I think it's more of a review of the things that happened. But I think it leads very nicely into your insight into how we define Chris Gaines. So Chris Gaines, to the man on the street, I guess, is a failure. You know, it's like, what is Chris Gaines? Well, Chris Gaines was this, if you even know what it is at all, and chances are you don't even know what the hell it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, second chances, if you do know what it is, it's like, oh, that was the time that Garth Brooks went crazy and had this persona and this alter ego and he was going to be a rocker and that happened for a minute and then I don't know 9-11 happened no one really you know it's just just gone from your memory and then there are freaks like me and you (laughs) where it's like I don't know where I just Chris Gaines is a failure unless you're a person like myself or I view the character and project of Chris Gaines as an unmitigated success Ah, a specific kind of success a camp success. Oh. Chris Gaines, the character, is a perfect camp character, is a perfect expression of the camp sensibility. There, It's an earnest, honest failure. It takes itself 100% deadly ass seriously. And it just doesn't work on any level, like you said. Like every right. part of it, the music, it doesn't work. The persona, it doesn't work. The story and the background and the timeline, it doesn't work. The musicianship is good. You know, it, there's, there's, well. there's a competence to uh, the baseline competence to mm-hmm. everything. But then, it, I don't know. It's it's like the 10th smartest kids in all the class got together. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just fascinating to me on a lot of levels. And I think the reason why I love the SNL episode so much is because like so much of camp and theater culture kind of go together and go hand in hand. And Garth Brooks is a live performer, naturally. that he, That's what he does when he performs as Garth Brooks. This is live on stage. Saturday Night Live on stage. Yeah. It's performance. And it's so combining his talent as like a stage performer and a singer and working a crowd and that kind of like charisma and showmanship plus the combination of just sort of like overall theater culture and like gay culture and Mm -hmm. like camp 
gay yeah. culture aspects of it too. So they're all smashed together in the Saturday Night Live episode overall in a positive way, I think. But you also have some ideas about how, I don't know, like there's the mango bit. There's Tracy Morgan bits, yeah, you know? I, you know, I will say of all the things that we've seen of Chris Gaines, the most successful part of it is the Saturday Night Live performance. Yeah. When Garth Brooks is in the garb mm-hmm. of Chris Gaines playing Way of the Girl, it's good. I mean, yeah. it's really theatrical. He's putting his hands dramatically up to his head. He's slow. Yeah. Yeah. He's playing a character. 100%. It's 100%. And doing it very well. And the song, frankly, sounds way better on SNL than it does on, on the, the album. record for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. But before we get into Mango and the very troubling words of Tracy Morgan uh, and yeah. all is it Morgan or Jordan? I it's always, Tracy Morgan. God, I get confused. Tracy Thanks, Jordan is 30 from Rock. 30 Rock. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's rewind and oh, let, yeah, yeah. let the audience in on what you mean by camp. So camp is sort is camp is hard to define. And like I said, I've I've taken like a class. I've you know it's, Well you're also a, a student I of like pop to culture. Read. I like to read. I am a student of pop culture and I like to read. And I think the easiest thing you can look at is Susan Sontag's notes on camp. Susan Sontag, writer and academic person and she wrote notes on camp in the early 60s what year 1964 oh yes the 1964 essay notes on camp yes the classic so are you familiar with the matt gala by oh, any chance yeah absolutely the, the big, okay so this tw- the 2019 theme for the met gala was camp that was the theme for everyone every celebrity to come dress in camp exactly and it was so, and so her essay notes on camp was sort of like the tent pole some like they literally used it as like this is what we mean mm-hmm. uh and it's an academic essay and it's you know just sort of thoughts on a theme and i'm going to read some of these aloud much in the same way michael read that twitter thread now these notes it's kind of like a bullet list it's literally number one number two number three that's just like here are some thoughts and this is from like 1964 and a lot of her references are way 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 older than that even like 19th century and early 20th Mm. um but academic i mean academic but at the same time she's referencing like the gold diggers in 1933 34 she buzz you know it's like musicals Mm -hmm. and campy stuff musical theater is campy is that a controversial statement i don't really think so i don't think so so anyway moving on so Here's one. One must distinguish between naive and deliberate camp. Pure camp is always naive. Camp, which knows itself to be camp, usually is less satisfying. Now, I sort of described this to you earlier where I was like, Rocky Horror Picture Show, deliberate camp. The Room, naive camp. Interesting. So Rocky Horror Picture Show, which hopefully everyone has seen, Clearly is a ridiculous film, mm-hmm. and it knows it's a ridiculous. Yeah, it's film. it's self it's self aware campy. It's self aware right. campy, and I was. It's ma- a musical theater. Yes, boom, the, exactly. The characters are insane, like exactly. stereotypes almost. Exactly. Just just think about well, like what influenced Rocky Horror Picture Show is like all RKO radio, like campy alien movies, and just sort of like B films. And those films were made in earnest. Absolutely. Those films Some were of not, them. All, not all of right. them. Not 100%. But Again, yeah. I think we should be very open about the fact that when anyone talks about camp, a lot of nuance, a yeah. lot of subtlety. And no one 100%. You know, there were like arguments during the Met Gala. It's like, well, does this really count? What is it? It's sort of an amorphous concept to begin with. It's right. not like 100% black and white. Right. But, but there's there's bumper bowling. There's, there's like a little Sontag's rules mm-hmm. kind of help 
form well, not that. rules, but notes. Just notes. like think literal more, called yeah, notes think on more, camp. Think more like ideas and observations than like guidelines. Fair. I guess you yes, know. Fair. So pure examples of camp are unintentional. They are dead serious. Uh, she used an example of an Art Nouveau lamp and also Warner Brothers musicals from the 30s. And there. you're citing the room. Our listenership maybe references the room as like a very serious film. Like. The intent mm-hmm. behind the film was very serious. And the intent behind Chris Gaines was very serious. I mean, Garth Brooks went on the record multiple times to say that this is a dead-ass serious project. This, Absolutely. This is not Spinal Tap. We're not the Ruddles. We're not Spinal Tap. Like, this is a real thing. Right. So he's going out there to the press every day, like, saying, take me seriously. Take this seriously. This is a serious project. The CEO of Capitol Records says the goal of this is to make Garth sell 100 million more you know it's like this is real take it seriously yeah we have that quote from uh someone at capital who's like on the pr team saying garth has to rein us in when we get too silly yeah and Mm -hmm. this is a hero i'm pretty sure the quote verbatim is Chris Gaines is a hero, a movie star. Like, you can't get more dead serious. And, and, and the premise of the film is he's dead <laughs> already. So right. it's like the premise of the film is already he's dead. Uh, what's the backstory of his life? Tragedy. His father doesn't love him and now he's dead. His best friend's dead. Things like that. Number 23 in Sontag. In Naive or Pure Camp, the essential element is seriousness, a seriousness that fails. Uh-huh. And I mean, we're checking boxes. If we, mm, I'm just saying, yeah. When something is just bad rather than camp, it's often because it's too mediocre in its ambition. The artist hasn't attempted to do anything really outlandish. But do you think that Garth was not being outlandish? No, he is outlandish. That's he why is. it works. Yeah, it's like the outlandishness is what makes it camp. There's nothing mediocre about the Chris Gaines project. There's a no. hundred. There's fucking four hundred people working on this at all levels. <laughs> we got we got Babyface and his wife yeah. like on deck we've yeah. got this record company we've got this movie company we've all the got players, all, all the people in the studio Saturday Night Live we've got dude who voices over behind the music had to go in for two extra days of work yeah to voice over a fake behind the music for Chris Gaines so I don't think that that's a mediocre scope no all right. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Moving along, number 25, the hallmark of camp is the spirit of extravagance. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying. And then it goes on. There, she references Gaudi buildings in Barcelona and such. But number 26, camp is art that proposes itself seriously but cannot be taken altogether seriously because it is too much. Oh. I mean. Oh. I mean. Wow. I mean, that's... Okay, I see that. Number 30, of course, the canon of camp can change. Time has a great deal to do with it. Time may enhance what seems simply dogged or lacking in fantasy now because we're too close to it, because it resembles too closely our own everyday fantasies, fantastic nature of which we don't perceive. We're better able to enjoy a fantasy when it is not our own. So there's sort of two thoughts there. I think the first thought of that could even go back, especially to the critic whose Twitter thread you read. It's like, I've got the distance of time now between my original perceptions of this. Right. I I almost said Elizabeth Taylor record. (laughs) Liz Fair. (laughs) Liz Fair, yeah. (laughs) Very Um, similar. uh, But yeah, so, and it's the same thing with Chris Gaines, even for me and especially for me, because, you know, ninth grade Ashley isn't sitting back and smoking a bubble pipe and like, ooh, the pure camp sensibility, you know, it's like, no, this is wild. This is crazy. This is nuts, you know, and then. Let me think about it for 20 years. Let me do a little research. Oh, shit. His mom was dying. Oh, shit. Babyface was involved. I mean, it it just keeps going. It keeps 
oh, I'm not done. Please, I'm by not all done. means. There's a few more points. This is why so many of the objects are old-fashioned, out of date. It's simply that the process of aging or deterioration provides the necessary detachment or arouses a necessary sympathy. Oh. Okay. And I certainly am far more sympathetic to the person of Garth Brooks. Yeah, me too. Than I was when we started this project. Right. You know, we were speaking about this beforehand. It was like, so we've got Troyal Brooks, right. the person. We've got Garth Brooks, the persona and the famous person, yeah. the, cele- with the celebrity. And then we've got the fictional character. I, you know, so there's layers. So it's like Chris Gaines is a failure of the Garth Brooks career. But Chris Gaines as a character on its own, to me, is a success. Absolutely. You know, fully. I, I agree. I think the, the sympathy nature is really interesting. Given when I started this project, mm-hmm. I thought Chris Gaines was fairly laughable in a way, amazing and uh, just fascinating, but also like, oh, this behind the music, he's a sex addict. That's so funny. Yeah, exactly. And then you look at Garth Brooks' life; he struggled with he did with having sex addict <laughs> problems. Chris Gaines' father dies. Garth Brooks' mother dies. Yeah. Garth Brooks lost. F- Two friends in college, two tragedies. Chris, Chris Gaines, Gaines, when he was 19, lost his best friend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Chris Gaines, you know, despite his success, is is shown as being struggling with the music industry. We heard how Garth tried to come to Nashville multiple times mm-hmm. to live his dream and like ate shit. One didn't even make it 24 hours in one right. case. Yeah. yeah. So all those things are, I feel sympathetic absolutely like you understand chris Gaines and where that kernel came from it's not just some dumb idea like oh he's a sex addict well it's it like, is partially that i, I think. mean it yeah. is but it's it comes from a true place yeah absolutely. you know like it comes from it Garth, all does yeah right it's an an artist kind of expressing himself to work out his shit i mean there's no such thing as art that can really come from an untrue place unless you're like lying to yourself you know what but i even mean that's it's true like, yeah if you're lying to yourself and that's you, that's true you know you don't even know Ooh, what? <laughs> um we spoke i guess in maybe even the first or second episode about this how one reason why it's so much fun or and easier to talk about chris Gaines now is sort of like the culture's moved on from like snark yeah. you know the pitchfork 0.0 that that sort of like mode of judgment and criticism is a bit passe now and people are looking at things a bit differently. Oh, look at number 55 and notes on camp. <laughs> camp taste is above all a mode of enjoyment, of appreciation, not judgment. Camp is generous. It wants to enjoy. It only seems like malice or cynicism. So, yeah, and that's sort of the, like, fun little bitchiness where it's, like, where we're doing this and we're making jokes. You know what I mean? It it, it is, but it comes from a place of love. Absolutely. It really, really does. So in camp, more examples of camp, I think drag culture is often Mm -hmm. steeped in camp. Oh, for sure, yeah. you have drag character, drag personas. Think think about what is a drag queen. Like, what is a drag queen? A drag queen is playing the part of a woman. Generally way over the top. Exactly. It's, like, woman in quotation marks right i'm a woman this is femininity right that's great i love it yeah i love it that's why it's fun it's so good it's so good absolutely Drag King, you know same way I, oh my god yeah camp what it does is to find the success in certain passionate failures let's sit on that for a second that feels good yeah what it does is find the success in certain passionate failures i think passionate failure is <laughs> the Chris Gaines story. Yeah. Truly. It really, really is. Really, really is. 
It's a love. Camp taste is a kind of love, love for human nature. It relishes rather than judges the little triumphs and awkward intensities of, quote, character. Mm-hmm. So I think it's clear that Chris Gaines is camp. Oh, yeah. But worth noting, accidental camp. Ac- a pure camp. Pure camp. Not even trying to be camp. The pure, the most that you, the stuff that you like chop up and snort. Like seriously, the put it in my veins camp. Like that's why it works so good. Passionate, dead ass, serious, unintentional, world level, catastrophic failure. One of the top yeah. Western entertainers yeah. of the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm a fan. It's, I'm a, a fan. it's amazing. And it's incredible that that failure is what makes it a success. Which is exactly it's such a kind of like a hard thing to wrap your brain around that mm-hmm. the failure equates it to its perseverance. But it's exactly that. Yeah, totally. This is why your theory is so much smarter. This is <laughs> Well, I mean, I just calls them like a season. You know, I mean, honestly, when I opened up notes on camp and just started reading through and I was like, boom, 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 boom. Like I said, it's not a one to one sure thing you know she talks a lot there's a lot of art nouveau architecture and th- stuff right, in but, here but, but she even says that camp changes yeah. over time mm-hmm. that her notes on it which are not guidelines notes <laughs> are bound to change yeah and i just feel like the culmination of the Gaines character on saturday night live so to end the like a live theater context is just the perfect showcase for that character and Garth Brooks himself, who is really, really great on the show. A really, And really absolutely. just a really, really great performer and game. Totally game. Like, he's legit funny mm-hmm. and acts very well. Like, mm-hmm. he definitely could be a movie star, I think, even now. Like, he's still, he's funny. He's a good actor. Him in the Devil Can't Write No Love Song <laughs> sketch. He's funny. He's That's playing a straight six man. six-minute sketch. And it doesn't lag. It's it doesn't. Good. I know. I thought the same thing. Yeah. I thought, because, I, yeah, before I opened, I was like, oh, God, I don't remember this being six minutes long. And I was like, oh, that did not feel like a six-minute sketch. Yeah. The only problematic part of the SNL episode is the Tracy Morgan bit where uh, you have Garth does a sketch with whatever the Jersey teens, right? Uh-huh. The Boston the, the teens. Boston teens, The Boston yeah. teens, which is their first appearance on Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. is with Garth Brooks. And then it kind of cuts to this backstage thing with Tracy Morgan talking to Garth Brooks about Chris Gaines, saying that like, oh, have you seen the musical guest this week? And he's being massively homophobic. Uh-huh, extremely, yeah, yeah. And Garth is kind of taking it and it just rubs me the wrong way. Maybe it's 2019. Maybe it's 20 years. Maybe our culture is a little more, thank God, more open and accepting of homosexuality now. But like that part sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's easy. to. It wasn't. Th- history is never that long ago. I had a grandpa that was born in 1914. Right. You know what I mean? I had a grandpa that was an adult during the Depression. You know, the civil rights era. My mom was born when there were segregated drinking fountains. Right. 1999 was not that long, you know. No, definitely not. people could get married in 1999. No. Don't ask, don't tell us a thing in 1999. It was not that long ago. Absolutely. It really, really wasn't. And that was a huge part of the humor. And it's honestly that like, oh God, that's a whole fucking other podcast of like comedy culture and like bro comedy culture and homophobic comedy culture. I mean, still. Yeah. Literally to this day, like I literally just watched a thing with Kevin Hart talking over Lil Nas X about like, why is it a big deal that you're gay? Like, it's not a big deal. It's like he was super hella, extremely defensive out of absolutely nowhere immediately, like trying to act like more woke than he is, you know? And then Lil Nas X was like, well, 
it's a big deal because it's a big deal. And right. it's a big deal in large part because of like, honestly, like people like Kevin Hart, comedians like Kevin Hart making those kinds of jokes. Comedians like Tracy Morgan making those kinds of jokes. I was at the Ryman show. Uh, that, the infamous Ryman show. I was show. at the infamous Ryman show where Tracy Morgan had, I don't even remember how it was portrayed. I don't 100% remember it. It was like he got into a thing with a gay audience member and was like, oh, if my son was gay, I'd kill him or something. I don't even 100% remember what it was. Right. But I remember being in the room the audience member was in the front and I was towards the back and being in the room, it didn't seem like that big of a thing. Mm. I could not a hundred percent hear what was going on. It wasn't even really out of line with a lot of his humor that he was already telling jokes about that evening. It, and I'll tell you another thing. It didn't go over well in the room. It didn't go over well in the room at all. It's not That's like good. he said that. And it was like a huge fucking laugh line. It was a weird, awkward moment. And then honestly, the show kind of moved on. Yeah. And then he's pulled off 30 Rock. There's a 30 Rock episode about, you know what I mean? It's like he had had to disappear for a while. Not uncommon amongst comics. Yeah, I mean, I thought thought my issues with Saturday Night Live would be the Mango character. Because Mango, I feel, is such a stereotype of homosexuality and kind of... Yeah. It, I mean, it feels oh God, borderline. I don't know. Chris Kattan's entire tenure on that show could also be a podcast yes. of its own. Yeah. Like, I don't know, man. But in yeah. reflection, Mango's not so bad. Tracy Morgan is Mango's very not, no, upsetting. Mango was, no, everyone's in love with Mango. Uh, that was the joke of Mango, was everyone wanted Mango, right? Right. right. Yeah. But we're getting a little off topic. Uh, we're talking about the camp <laughs> oh, of yes, Chris yes. Gaines and how it was a success due to its failure and how camp is inherently theatrical. We've talked about this in previous episodes, and I'd like to lightly talk about it again, is the artifice of performance. Yeah. And how we know Garth Brooks is Troyal Garth Brooks. Mm -hmm. In reality, he may have always been called Garth, but he's Troyal Garth Brooks. That's the real person. Yeah. And then when he performs, he's Garth Brooks. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe it's not a far cry from who he is backstage or who he is off screen or whatever, but Mm -hmm. he's performing. Absolutely. Every performer is performing. And and you don't want to see a performer that's not. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) It's going to be boring and shitty. Like, Like, if if you're having a bad day and then there's a crowd out there, it could be 50 people. It could be 10,000. Yeah. Turn it on. You have to put this mask on. Mm Mm-hmm. And go perform. I didn't want to record yesterday because I, w- I wasn't feeling up to you it. Couldn't I was like, the, we let, like I, can't, I couldn't do the mess. Let's postpone. Like, yeah. let's, let's do 1030 in the morning yeah. instead. Yeah. <laughs> so Chris Gaines is just a mask. It's another way. Another mask. Exactly. Yeah. Think about, I mean, what is the little sock and buskin? That's that's the name of the tragedy and comedy masks ah. that want to represent theater, yeah. comedy and tragedy. They're called sock and buskin. It's it's named after different shoes that Greek actors wore on stage, depending on if they were doing a comic or a tragic play. That's something I learned in literally 10th grade. Once again. <laughs> You have trounced me My in the intelligence department. My brain holds certain things. Sock and buskin is just something that really like glommed onto my synapses. You saw my hard. face drop when you said that. <laughs> no clue what those words were. But yeah, I mean, to the Greeks, I mean, literal mask. And I mean, I only really know the Western tradition. But I mean, if you look at Japanese theater or any, it's all the same. Yeah, it's all right? the same. Re- a religious, spiritual, any sort of thing where it's like, oh, you're a shaman, but now you're a bear. Same thing. It's yeah. all the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Heady stuff thanks yeah but i think it's interesting that you have garth brooks who is a performer 
of Troil. You have Chris Gaines, who is a performer of Garth, mm-hmm. another level deeper. But you accept Garth when he's on Saturday Night Live doing a WXLU hilarious sketch. <laughs> like, one of the best. The morning, Very, the, or the, re- yes. the redo, yeah. Unsung <laughs> hilarity of that episode. You accept him from that because you're in on it. Like, he's acting. He's the host of Saturday Night Live. Of course, he's yes. not seriously being Mel from WXLU. Mm-hmm. But when he tries this seriousness of Chris Gaines, we're out. Yeah, we're because out. it's too serious. It's too serious. It's it's the songs don't work. It's, They're also you know, too yeah. serious. Maybe right. The, the songs are all way too serious, and <laughs> based on fictional movies, right? Or, you know, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And keep in mind, at what point do they know the movie's not happening? Is what I want to know too. At what point do they know the movie? Like, is Garth still approaching this performance with like, okay, these are all the people who are going to go see the movie. I want to make sure that they really know this character. You know what I mean? Or at this point, yeah. is it just like, is, does everyone know that this is not happening? I mean, there, there's, like, no there's no way. There's no turning back. There's no way for us to know. Yeah. But I would go ahead and just make up a scenario and say, by his appearance in November, he knows that people are not picking up on this. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, he doesn't that much well. for sure. But it could also be a fire under him to like really nail this performance and really come out blazing as Chris Gaines. Because he has, he's been on Conan. He's been yeah. on Leno and did not dress Perform. as Gaines. Yeah. And said specifically, this is not a character I want to dress as unless it was Saturday Night Live. And then it makes sense. It's because the artifice is there. Exactly. So Garth gets it too. You Garth, know, gets, Garth it too. gets it too. That's the thing that people need to understand, I feel like, is Garth fucking gets it too. I'm just talking about the, the movie part of it. Yeah. Maybe that was his last ditch effort to be like, mm. hey, Paramount, look, it, it works. It's cool. People are going to love this episode. Because we found articles that say Jeb Stewart's back on board. Yeah, yeah. Writing. Like, even though the thing is tanked. And, and Lisa Sanderson doesn't sue him till like 2013 yeah like there's years between 12 years later yeah. yeah it was funny i had actually misremembered the episode i had misremembered the old french whore was in this one but that was a previous was a previous one where he was garth brooks performed mm-hmm. hosted and performed yes and he was great old french whore is great. a great sketch yeah he should be on saturday night live way more often than alec baldwin absolutely oh, god yeah oh god new goal for this podcast i should be in charge of saturday night live <laughs> <laughs> Lauren Michaels should give me the show. Yeah. I feel like that would be a good move for everyone. <laughs> Guess have... what my first episode would be? Uh, Garth Brooks? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, remember, that anniversary is coming right up. Oh, just around the corner. Just around September the corner. September 28th. That's the album. November 13th. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Was the, so we got we got till mid-November. We have multiple to... games, anniversary, yes, games, anniversaries. Yes. Absolutely. I don't know if there's much more for us to say about the cultural impact and just sort of, I don't know, the weight of Chris Gaines and how it's persevered. I think it's accidental, massively successful camp is the best way to put it. I've just identified that as the reason why I like Chris Gaines. It's the same reason I like when Sharon Stone's husband got his toe bit by the Komodo dragon. It's the same (laughs) reason I like when Fabio got hit in the face by a goose. Yeah. It's I like it when Garth Brooks did Chris Gaines, especially on SNL, because what the hell? I love it. I love it. It's so pure. It's so pure. Success through failure is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's the in many ways my favorite kind of success. <laughs> At least for me to enjoy. At least for me to enjoy. It's more, you know, that's more fun to me than, I don't know, Avatar. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, you want to wrap it up? Let's wrap it up. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. You can follow us at Garth Gaines SNL on Twitter. We are at ChrisGainesPodcast.com. We appreciate everyone for listening and for contacting us. I think we got one more to go. Yeah. Because there's not a whole lot more to say about Chris. This Gaines. is it. We're, we're, we're rounding the bend. If you feel differently about the camp success of Chris Gaines, try and get at us, but we're right. <laughs> yes, 100% right. 100% right. Thank That's you so all. much. <laughs> <laughs>